This is Matt Brown, and you're listening to Just a Good Conversation. The old saying, don't meet your heroes, as they often fail to fulfill your expectations, resulting in disappointment. For two hours, I got to meet one of the photographers I looked up to when I was starting out, Greg Gorman, and he didn't disappoint for one second. A true master of the photography craft. If you find yourself lucky enough to take one of his workshops, you are going to walk away a better photographer. Yeah, well, I mean, I avoided uh, digital for years because I always thought it was a good excuse for poor photography. And I also felt that in the early days, the digital cameras didn't uh, have enough megapixels to be able to make a print. You know, three megapixel cameras didn't really work. I used all the little point-and-shoot cameras, but I didn't think that the regular 35s had enough oomph. I'm Matt Brown, host of Just a Good Conversation. Take a listen to my archives. My guests have ranged from Oscar winners, college coaches, and head of psychology at Cal State Dominguez Hills, Dr. Tiffany Herbert. Some people are depressed, but how would you, like, what makes, what makes it depression versus sadness? I also believe that saying I'm depressed is sort of external, like it happened to you, whether we're saying I'm sad you is a more vulnerable statement to make. So I think there's some distance in being able to say the label versus the feeling. The rest of my conversation with Dr. Herbert can be found on our archives at justagoodconversation.com. Let's take a quick break for a sponsor before diving into my conversation with Greg Gorman. I have the pleasure to sit down with, I'm going to say one of my idols, one of my photographic idols. Greg, how are you this morning? Well, that makes me feel pretty good, so I guess I'm doing well. I mean, I'm going to be very serious. Like, you were one of the guys I looked up to when I wanted to make images. Well, that makes me feel good. I I wish I lived, though, in a time where it was easy to see your work. You know, growing up in the 80s, you had to go to a bookstore or a library, you know, to find your work. And and a lot of the stuff where you were doing music or uh, movie posters... They didn't have your name on it, so right. A lot of the lot of the work that uh, I produce commercially never they right. never show your name. It's so unknown. People go, oh, I didn't know you did that. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. you know, you would think like, did he do this? Did he do that? Now I can see everything you you've done, how you've done it, and that's been fabulous. I think for the younger photographers coming up, is seeing how the masters did it. Well, it's interesting today because a lot of the millennials that are uh, running the show today have no clue that most of them have not done their homework. Most of them don't know who you are. Most of them don't respect your style. It's pretty much the reason uh, that I kind of got out of the business around 2006. See, now that breaks my heart. 2006, 2007. Well, it got to the point that I would get uh, projects, and I don't want to sound bitter about it. It's really probably the reason I decided I had been there and done that. Um, that they just they lack respect, and I mean respect in the form of understanding who you are as an artist. I mean, I would get to the point where I would be on a photo shoot uh, with talent that had hired me to do the pictures, and the art director would say, I would like you to light her from this side. And they go, well, I don't think she's going to look great from this side. Well, that's what we want. And I said, not a problem. You're the boss. Just let her know because uh, she knows I know how to light her. And they would say to me, well, you're the photographer. You... you uh, tell her I said you know it's not going to happen so right that's when I decided to kind of check out now your original background was it as it Candace as a photojournalist like you were gonna were you gonna be a newspaper guy absolutely not um I actually borrowed a friend's camera we were joking about this before we started the podcast to shoot a Jimi Hendrix concert in Kansas City 
Um, it was a buddy of mine that I went hunting and fishing with on the weekends, and he was an avid photographer. And I thought, well, gosh, I've got third row center tickets to see Jimi Hendrix. I might as well take some pictures. And with that, I borrowed his camera, shot the pictures, processed the film in his darkroom the next morning. And when I saw pictures coming up on a white sheet of paper, I was pretty well hooked. The magic. The magic. And uh, so I was already in art, uh, arts and crafts, basically. <laughs> I was in liberal arts and sciences at the University of Kansas. And I thought, well, I'll enroll in a photography course because this is pretty cool. And the only course that they had, honestly, was, uh, unfortunately, was photojournalism. But it was okay. Okay. And so that was my ma- undergraduate uh, major at, uh, at KU. So then what made you other than, I mean, obviously your destination was SC, but was it come out west, young man, kind of? Yeah, honestly, my destination wasn't really uh, SC. I was going to school there. And I'd met a, 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 a friend, a guy that became a dear friend of mine to this day, Larry Stevenson, okay. who was working for Eastman Kodak. And he had seen some of my work in a local show. And he let me go to his house and print in the evenings and, and, and on a color enlarger and everything, uh, in addition to my work at uh, KU. And he said to me, you know, Greg, unless you want to become a technical sales rep, there's no reason for you to go to further uh, with like, even he said like Brooks or something like that. Right. But you're better off to basically study film. And that's why I came out to California to go to film school at USC. Now, and, and you've, you've admitted this, and I thought it was kind of funny that you're a control freak. Absolutely. Right. But you, you went to SC for film, but it, it just, it didn't blend. You just couldn't um, get your vision across. Without- well, what you said is true. I mean, exactly that. I mean, they basically, in a movie situation, they'll always go for a great acting take over a great camera take. Right. And uh, I like that one-on-one control. I like working with an individual in the studio on a one-on-one situation without a lot of flack standing around telling me what to do or how to operate. I mean, you look like you should be a, a Ridley Scott cousin i mean you you've got that look i don't know he's a control freak cameron's a control freak well tony ridley's brother is a good friend right, of mine, right. You know? yeah i mean i could see you i could see you actually trying to do that i mean your visuals are so what they need now in hollywood i would have loved to have seen you behind the camera that's Just, funny it's the whole style has changed i mean today <laughs> you know when you look at a lot of the work out there today which a lot of it's really fantastic but it's different and, you know, I mean, I had my own style, which is, you know, strong highlights and hard, harsh shadows. And um, today's stuff is a little bit more editorial. A lot of it's a little bit more open, less, uh, I would say, planned out, uh, a little bit more just very editorial looking. I mean, even the portraits that you see coming out of actors. And today, of course, a lot of people, a lot of celebrities don't even use uh, portrait photographers anymore no. because everything's no. just on on instagram they just do their own selfies yeah your deep shadows would scare the industry today huh. i mean they would just be like we can't see anything that's okay it falls right, i was never zone. about the kodak moment you know about <laughs> i was uh more about you know using the shadows and the and the blacks to frame the face and tell a story i think that's lost that those yeah. those shadows the, the the curves the contrast uh give something to the image and now it's you know, every shadow's opened up. Every highlight is smooth. There's nothing there. Yeah, they like a lot of fill. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of fill. When you're at SC and you're starting to see like, okay, this isn't going to be my cup of tea. I'm not going to go cinema. Were you panicky? Were you nervous? Or was there a path that you were pretty sure you were going to go? No, because I felt pretty comfortable. I mean, I was still um, I'm in the department that I dealt with the most at USC was – 
as a cinematographer uh, because that's where my passion was. So I still was involved in doing all my lighting. And in the, in the films that I made when I was at USC, I still used my hard lighting and you still see it in the, in those old movies. And, uh, I just realized that I was a real people person and I like to not have so many people around me when I'm working. So on a movie set, it's, it gets to be a little cluttered. Yes. But ironically, you know, my career uh, in terms of my commercial work really was shooting motion picture campaigns. <laughs> so I was on the set. But generally, uh, when that happened, I had my own one-on-one -on -one time with the talent in between uh, their acting takes or when they were changing a set or whatever. Who was your influence when you were coming up? Who did you look at? Um, as as a, a young guy, I really loved, uh, of course, Richard Avedon. Helmut okay. Newton was a, a, a big inspiration in many ways, even though our styles were really different. But uh, Helmut and I became very good friends in life. Helmut oh. and June and I became very close friends. And uh, I always loved his work and the, and the intensity in his portraiture. And, of course, I loved Richard Avedon. I loved Irving Penn. I loved some of the early Scavula, Scribneski. I mean, you know, I never was really a fashion photographer. I mean, you know, I loved Hero's work. I right. loved Guy Bourdain's work. Uh, you know, I loved a lot of the stuff that Bruce Weber did. Um, you know, I loved Jim Pollard Barbieri, who's become a good friend actually since. So I, I admired their work, but I always was much more on the, on the celebrity-driven end rather than fashion. Right. And I don't know why, but that's just kind of where my life took me. Yeah, the avenue just kind of opened up and you went for it. Yeah. Right? Because that's the, that's your, was, would you say Interview, the magazine, was your gateway in? Certainly, uh, Interview Magazine and LAI Works were the two, I would say, biggest influences in terms of getting my work out there for people to see. It, and uh, it, certainly Interview. Interview was first? the beginning. Yes, interview was the beginning, and that's an interesting, kind of an interesting story. Yeah, how uh, did you, how did that even come about? I was working on a picture called Grease 2 with <laughs> Alan Carr, uh, and uh, the, the lead actor was a young guy named Maxwell Caulfield, to who this day I credit for helping launch my career in many ways. He was starring in this movie, and he had just come off, he'd just come off off-Broadway in a little play called Entertaining Mr. Sloan, and he was kind of... New York and Hollywood's bad boy. He was this beautiful boy that was, had the lead in Alan Carr's movie, and Interview Magazine was keen on getting him for the cover of the magazine. I had the access. This is a, one of those situations where you're in the right place at the right time. And they contacted me and said, could I get him to shoot a cover for Interview Magazine? I said, I don't know. I really don't know because it was new to me. And I said, I'll ask him and see what he says. And he said, yeah, sure. We had a great relationship. And I see Maxwell and Juliet all the time still to this day. They're just a beautiful couple. And, uh, I went up to Max's house and we shot around the pool and, uh, got some great pictures. And that was really the help. What helped launch my career was certainly Andy Warhol's interview magazine. And I shot probably, you know, I don't know, 15, 20 covers, 15 covers for him, something like that. Access. Maybe a few more than that. And they were great in those days. It's kind of where you started with our conversation. Or actually, I think before you started the <laughs> podcast, we, you were saying how things had changed so much. You know, in the old days, you'd get time with the talent. And right. uh, today, you're lucky to get 15 minutes. We can do a story on that later about Tom <laughs> Waits, if you remember. Yes, yeah. But uh, the movie thing was, was pretty extraordinary because Interview, uh, very much unlike today, um, would say, Greg, we want Kim Basinger for this cover. We want you to shoot it or whoever. Mm -hmm. And uh, here's her number. You know, call her, call the publicist and do the shoot. Nobody came to the shoot. I would I would go research a home that I'd want to shoot in, rent a house, 
and the talent would meet there. I'd book my hair and makeup, my stylist, we'd bring the clothes, and the only people there were the, was the talent and my makeup, hair, and styling people and my assistants, and we had full creative control. I would turn the pictures in that I wanted to have run, and uh, there was nobody editing pictures. There was nobody saying, you can use this picture, you can't use this picture. And I think it's one of the reasons that Interview was so successful in those early days and had so many great artists working for them because you really saw the footprint of the talent as opposed to yes. the footprint of some idiot that's trying to figure out what they're supposed to do as their job. Right. I mean, they hired you for your skills, your talent, your access, your ability to, to have a, a moment with the subject and there wasn't an art director or creative director jumping in going, oh, no, 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 Greg, we yeah, got an idea. Never, never. Oh. And I really virtually would turn in, if it was a six, six or eight pictures, which however many setups I did, I'd turn in one picture for each of the setups. <laughs> and the oh. only choices that they got were the headshot for the cover of the magazine, which uh, we usually would shoot on a clean back suite. And then Richard Bernstein would do his stunning portraiture interpretation of the photograph. And there I'd give Richard four or five pictures to go from. Wow. But they never one time ever came back to me and said, do you have another picture on this setup, Greg? Do you have something else we might look at? Not one time in all the years. I mean, you were young at the time, but did you realize how good you had it even in that moment? No, I mean, I think my career was, I was just so fortunate and very lucky about being in the right place at the right time that everything just happened so fast. Really didn't have a time to really uh, assess anything. It just, you just kept going from one to the next to the next, and it just, there was no break. Wow. I mean, that, I mean, just saying how that worked out never will happen again. Never. It's no. done. You literally we're working in a golden age of ability to communicate with your subject that's completely lost now with layers of people in between. Jesus. Yeah, well, that's exactly right. It, it, it ceases to be fun, you know. Right, yeah. I mean, you were literally, and I, I've, I've heard, like, you, you're, you're cooking lunches and you've got, you know, a great set and you're sitting down, you're communicating. You're having a, a wonderful event with this person. Now it's like, hi, how are you doing? I got five minutes. Here's my setup. Bang, bang, bang. Done. That's it. Doesn't matter. It's pretty much what it is. You really don't even have time to get into that person's head to figure out what you're supposed to be doing or what you're capable of getting, capturing, because everything is moving at, at such a rocket pace. And it's, it's just how it is today. I mean, in the day when I did it, we were flying first class. We were, had suites at the Ritz-Carlton. People were generous. And it was, everything was, was you know, and in, and, and in return, you gave you know, 110% right. because everything was, was pretty terrific. And, and it's so changed. I remember taking many times, taking the Concord to Africa to shoot a movie poster for a small movie for Disney pictures. So it, it just goes to show you that today, you know, they want to fly, you know, I'm six foot three and 73 years old. They want to fly your coach. They want to do this. I, I don't do it anymore. You know, it's just yeah. not worth it. Hey, Greg, can you get on Southwest? <laughs> yeah, I don't mind short flights, but, uh, and and coach if it's uh, but you know when you're when you're six foot three and you're flying you know across country or you know on a long flight it's tough especially if you're going to get off the plane and go right to the set and start working which has happened many you know of course happened many times when you finish a job here and then you had to be on a plane to get to New York to shoot something the next morning or that night you never knew you know it was crazy right. was interview where you kind of started to get your style oh no question. Um, 
I had a very uh, good guy that worked with me in the early days named David Jacobson, who now owns a couple of very popular bars in uh, Bangkok, and who's a, a good friend uh, to this day, who honestly helped teach me my early lighting. He actually, as my assistant, knew lighting much better than I did when I was first starting out, and I have to take my hat off and give the kudos to David, but he showed me the importance and the uh, the critical use of spot grid lighting, and... Uh, then I got completely hooked, obviously, and I liked you know working with that much shadow. Not what you said in the highlights, but what you don't say in the shadows that kind of sometimes can make a difference in a picture, and David certainly was responsible for showing me that back in the 70s. Wow, because I know you like to start off you know, camera direct, and then you start to manipulate the light and find what works on your subject. Right, well, I'll normally start um, when I'm working with someone, if I'm unfamiliar with them, unless I'm just dead locked right. in. With a, with a very over-the-camera light, and I'll have them turn into the light and away from the light and look at, you know, what I want to play up in the highlights and play down in the shadows. And uh, then I'll move the light to where I want it to be. Yeah. When you're looking at a subject, before you even bring a camera up, I mean, you're really just dis- dissecting their whole body, cheekbones, hairline, jaw, the whole thing, trying to see, see what is going to work for them. Is that what you're... Oh, yes, and I usually start... Uh, like once the person comes in and they'll go into hair and makeup, we'll usually, before that, we usually will usually figure out the clothes is the first thing we do sure. for the shoot. And then once they go into hair and makeup, I'll have had a discussion. And I always work with my same makeup and hair people so that um, they understand what goes into creating a Greg Gorman photograph. It's not Greg Gorman just doesn't create a photograph. It's the, my team are all just as critical members of, of that image that you see on the printed page as I am because they understand who I am and what I'm looking for and they're able to do their interpretation of what they think I want so to speak right so when they start it's kind of a convoluted answer to your question but so when we start with the makeup and hair I usually will sit down in the makeup and uh, in the makeup room and I'll be watching them while we're having a conversation where I'm trying to come up or down to their level to kind of get us on the same page mm-hmm. and I'll I'll kind of watch everything in the makeup mirror and see you know, if the nose bend this way, is this eye smaller? I need the camera a little higher. Is there something I need to worry about? And that's kind of how I'll start it. And then the assistant set everything up based upon what I want. And then I'll go in when we start and obviously fine-tune everything. Now, you've said this a lot. Team, you really, really value your team. Yes. Your, your hair, your makeup. You've been very loyal to them for a long time. Yeah. You've had a lot of... My first same- two main assistants, I mean, David was with me for the some of the most fundamental years, the very, very beginning. And then my other assistants, uh, Kevin Lynch was with me for probably 25 years and wow. Richie probably 20. So yeah, that's long. a long time. Yeah. Well, you know, they understand you. They also know when to speak and when not to speak. And, and that's a big thing with a lot of assistants. Um, you know, th- they're there to not really be seen. And this sounds bad on my part and I don't mean it in that way at all, but they're really kind of in the background and they're really there just to kind of fine tune what your, your needs are while you're shooting and yeah. to find people that can anticipate your next move and be ahead of the game. That's what you want to find. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're the best support and that's what you want all the time in a good team player. When you were starting out, was it 35 your tool? And then did you go to medium yeah. format? Yeah. Well, I started out for a little bit for 35, but I was on to a Hasselblad by the time I was on at to interview magazine. So okay. I, I was probably shooting 35 in the mid 70s. And uh, when I started 
getting into more creative stuff and of course certainly the motion picture stuff uh i got into uh medium format i think the first time that i shot a medium format camera is a funny story i had a little apartment in Lowell canyon um and uh, i got a uh, i don't remember how the hell the job came up but i got an assignment to shoot an album cover for leon russell it was called the wedding album leon and mary russell <laughs> and uh they wanted it shot in you know medium format and so i borrowed my friend's Hasselblad and I have setting everything up in my little apartment in Laurel Canyon, and Leon says to me, he says, I, so you have a Polaroid? I said, no, what do I want a Polaroid? I didn't even know that it was a Polaroid back for a Hasselblad <laughs> back in those days. I'll show you how naive I was. And But uh, shortly after that, I, I think probably within the next month or two, I liked that big square format. I bought a Hasselblad mm-hmm. and, and um, switched to pretty much shooting medium format. Especially for someone who's doing portraits. I mean, that just lends yeah. it. Oh. And I love the square format. I loved it. It awesome. was great. Yeah. When did then the one sheets come into your life? Was that after LA Magazine or LA Eyewear? No, LA Eyeworks came in uh, around the time of Interview Magazine. Okay. Uh, pretty much. Uh, we can, that's another story. The one, with the one sheets, I started doing some... Uh, freelance uh, work where I was just working free. I, I got an agent, t- you know, I think towards the end of the late 70s, and I was working with Sigma and Gamma and all those things. And, and okay. uh, I was just doing, you know, spec work on Richard, uh, Richard Corman movies, you know, um, just low-budget features, but some of them ended up becoming movie posters. And so I somehow through friends started doing a little bit of that. And then in the early 80s, um, I was fortunate enough to get some really great uh, movie assignments like Big Chill, Scarface, Tootsie was one of the very first. Now that was before unionized, right? Was that you? I was never was union. Right. I was always known. Uh, my p- position on a movie was always as a special photographer. Uh, the word special uh, is what was used when they would bring in a non-union uh, artist to shoot, kay. and what they would have to do is they would have to hire a union guy to sit on the sidelines. <laughs> And, I mean, God bless him. I had Phil Stern sitting on the sidelines while I was shooting. Did you, know? you really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which oh, was just amazing, you know. And, uh, you know, and, and my stupidity, I didn't really know who he was then. And we were friends, and we'd talk, and we'd have lunch together, but didn't know much about him. And he never, he was a very humble guy, you mm-hmm. know. Never really said yeah. a lot about what he was doing. And yeah, you kind of ruined Tootsie for me, because in the scene you're in with Dustin Hoffman, all I wanted to do was see what camera you were using. Yeah, I was shooting a <laughs> five oh three or yeah, five oh one exactly. or whatever, and that was a funny story. I was I came in one day from um, from lunch. I'd been working on Tootsie for about five weeks, and I walked into the loft. Now, what are you doing for five weeks? Shooting Dustin, shooting Jessica Lang, shooting everything, shooting all this special photography. They kept me on. He had several other photographers on the movie before me, and it didn't work out for him. And he and I got along great. Right. So this is five weeks is a long yeah, time. Well, yeah, I ended up doing six weeks. Oh, and Christ. it was funny. And, and it was funny. So I came in one day from lunch, and Sidney Pollack was nervous because, you know, that movie was such a landmark film. Huge. He thought, you know, he didn't know if he was going to have a hit or a bomb because it was such a crazy movie. And uh, I came in, and Sydney says, Oh, my God, Greg, how long have you been on this picture? I said, Well, this is my fifth week. Sydney says, Oh, my God, Christ, I can't, cannot uh, authorize you to stay on longer than this. I said, Okay, um, I'll let Dustin know. And so I went to see Dustin, and I said to Dustin, uh, Listen, uh, Dustin, uh, Sydney said... Uh, you know, this has got to be my last week. Fuck Sydney. <laughs> <laughs> you stay on. 
so we anyway we worked and 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 he was Dustin was great, but Dustin was promised a scene in in the movie that he could do whatever right. he wanted, become famous, and he told Sydney that he wanted to do a, a shoot with me, and that's how that shoot came about in the movie, because Dustin asked he wanted to do a scene where we did a photo session, and then and uh, you and then, thank God it was you because you've seen this when it's photographers in a movie who aren't photographers. It's horrible to look at. They don't know what the hell they're doing. Their dark slide is in. They're not sure. The lights are all backwards. Yeah. But you we were actually did a real shoot. I mean, yes. it was a real shoot that they filmed. You could tell. And uh, Dustin said to me that more beforehand, he says, Greg, who do you know that's famous that could come down and be in the movie with us? And so I thought, well, I'm shooting David Bowie this weekend, so I'll call him and see if he'll come down and do it. And I called David, and David said, well, I can't because I'm getting my highlights done for our shoot. Diva. It was one of the shoots. No, he was never a diva. David is no, so just... far from a diva, but, he, but it was true because uh, he had done his hair kind of blonde for our shoot that time. So that was really a true story. But I called Andy Warhol up at the factory because we were shooting right there by, by his office off Union Square, and Andy came down and was in the movie because of me. Right, and it's a, it's yeah. which is a true story. And then he wrote later in his diaries that I cheated him out of his day rate, which is kind of funny. I didn't know that until Pat Hackett. I heard from Pat Hackett that that's what he had said. He wanted his money. <laughs> well, it's it's interesting how something like that a relationship evolves, where you're you're on the set, and then Dustin wants a scene to make it work, and your relationship with him evolves into something, and that's. You know, you can see that in your work. Well, it's also winning their trust and confidence. I mean, that's a huge part of it. It's once they feel comfortable with you and they know that, you know, you've got their back, which is really critical in the world of photography. Right. When did you start Um, working with Dustin to get that relationship? Well, that was on on Tootsie. I'd never worked with him before. I just came in as a special from Columbia Pictures. The late Ed Rajinsky was really wonderful. He and Marvin Antonowski, both long gone now, um, uh, hired me on a lot of the great Columbia movies, which was, you know, very, I was very fortunate. You built that relationship so quickly that he wanted you in it within five weeks. That's unbelievable. That's great. That's, I mean, well, that's, I mean, you know, we just got along well and the pictures look good. And right. But still, I mean, there's my retoucher was good at retouching <laughs> the hairline on those wigs. <laughs> so that worked. Yeah. He was an attractive gal. Um, tell me about the Tom Waits situation because that really, right. Is that, the next rocket ship for you? No, Tom was a very Tom was very early. Tom was late seventies. Uh, so I shot an album cover for him called Heart Attack and Vine in in nineteen seventy eight or seventy nine. Okay, but uh, the story that kind of ties to that is so when they booked that shoot, uh, um, I had Tom for three days, and we shot for three days. I'd picked him up. He was living at the Tropicana Hotel when it was on the corner of Santa Monica and La Cienega. And I'd pick him up at like 7.38 in the morning, you know, in his little funky apartment there. And we'd go out and shoot all day until like, I'm sometimes till midnight. And we did it for three days. And on the third day, the art director says, oh, Greg, we really, and this is, again, your typical art directors that are afraid of their own shadow, says to me, well, we'd love to get him in a tuxedo. And I said, well, I don't think that's going to happen. Well, would you ask him? I said, well, I'll ask Tom. So the end of the second day, I said, listen, Tom, they'd love to see you, uh, wear a tuxedo for a picture and he says well the only way i'd wear a fucking tuxedo i'd probably get shot (laughs) so we got a girl put her on the staircase got a gun got fake blood shot him in the tuxedo greased him up blood all over and they airbrushed spent three thousand dollars airbrushing all the blood out of the photograph to use it for the cover of the album (laughs) 
which is kind of crazy. Why did they not understand the blood part? Well, what? you know, this is a long time ago. We're talking 70s. And then um, the irony was, so he gave me like three days. So cut to like 20, 25 years later, maybe longer. Uh, I uh, had a shoot with him for the London Sunday Times. I thought, well, this is great. I haven't seen Tom in a long time. He, Tom's a good guy. He's a yeah. br- brilliant, brilliant artist. But they gave me, he gave me 30 minutes, and I had to meet him in a Chinese diner in Santa Rosa. He lived in, up in Sebastopol, I think is where he lives. And uh, How did you pull that off? Well, I went in. The Chinese diner was a piece of shit. There was nothing to shoot in there. Ugly drab walls, no light. It was horrible. But right behind the Chinese diner, being in Santa Rosa, was a beautiful railroad track. So we walked out in the back, and in five minutes, Tom is like one of the ones, like Richard Pryor, who was one of the geniuses in front of a camera, that could uh, improvise and give you more than you could ever ask for in five, ten minutes. That was Tom. He just was genius. And we got all the pictures on the railroad track. Wow. Now, see, so your eyes lit up when you say yeah. improvise. Do you love a subject that can just give you something special? Well, it's interesting when they can just kind of put it on, you know. It's, it, it's, it doesn't happen always that often. Right. You know, I mean, Richard Pryor was able to do that for Richard it? Pryor was incredible. He's yeah. a special yeah. human being. Yeah. I mean, they don't he make was, him he like was, that. He was incredible, yeah. He was a, really a good guy, too, you know, despite all the... Right. You know, the people that you hear are really the big assholes generally are the ones that are actually the coolest and the nicest, the most focused the most genuine human beings and the ones that you hear that are so fabulous are usually the jerks. It's, it's exactly the opposite. People don't know that in Hollywood. They don't get it because they just see the big picture. But uh, generally the people that are a little more discerning and, uh, and uh, uh, aware of, of everything are a lot more interesting and, and more fun to work with. Who's your top five like for someone that Richard Pryor like spontaneous can like out of nowhere just give well, you I mean, something? A, a people that I shot... I mean, I would say certainly at the top of the list uh, in the day would have been Leonardo DiCaprio because I worked with Leo um, a lot in his early days, and he was extraordinary. We did so many shoots when he wouldn't be working or I wasn't working. You know how long ago that was. Right. And we would just go and make pictures, and he loved to do pictures back in those days, and we did so many wonderful shoots. And he was someone that was comfortable with himself, that he wasn't afraid of showing uh, maybe a little bit more of the feminine side, the more masculine side. But he was he was he enjoyed as an artist, which is unusual for actors to do stills because most actors don't they suffer through doing stills, right. unfortunately. But Leo was really one of the greats, you know. I mean, in Bowie, of course, I you know I worked for many years with Bowie, Bette Midler. Those are people I, I shot so many times, you know. Betty Davis a lot, who was also Betty amazing. Davis. Yeah, she and was fun to work yeah. with. Yeah, she was great with me because she was funny. She was very outspoken, you know. Yeah, but she uh, had a mouth but, on her, sure. Well, yeah, I mean, it wasn't even that, but she was she was funny. I I mean, I had so many great Betty Davis stories. I, we did a shoot one time at the. Um, it's now I think it's called the um, Tower Hotel down there. It used to be the Argyle, I think, and. Uh, I was doing a shoot for Life magazine with her and, and James Woods, and um, they loved the pictures on the staircase they had there, and the hotels asked if they could have one of the pictures, and they were going to put it on this wall where there was a, a picture of Mary Pickford. That's where they wanted to put the picture, and they said, okay, and she agreed. And so cut to about a month later, I get a phone call, and it's uh, Betty Davis that my answering service picks up. Someone's on the phone, says it's Betty Davis. I said, well, it probably is Betty Davis. And Greg, Betty Davis. <laughs> she says, I had dinner at the St. James Club last night, and they moved the goddamn picture. If they don't put it back, they can't fucking have it. And she hangs up the phone. So, I mean, you know, she, and this, is, this was probably within a year, a year and a half before she passed away. 
<laughs> you know, That's she was great. an amazing person, you know. Oh, yeah. I would call, she'd answer the phone, you know, like real old Hollywood, you know. Oh, God. Whole different thing. You didn't go through this person, you didn't go through that person, you know. You call up, hello. Yeah, no layers. No. It was Betty. Yeah. What do you want, Greg? <laughs> you got another shoot with me again? That's, that's, those are special times. Did you, yeah. I mean, do you look back at that now when you put your head on the pillow and go, fuck, I can't believe I got to go through that. That was awesome. Well, I just feel appreciative for all the great experiences I was able to enjoy in my life. Yeah. Right. Was there a point in those early 80s, things are starting to go for you? Are you thinking, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit advertising, maybe do some commercial work? There's obviously big money in that. Was that something you were thinking of? I never really did all that. You know, I've, I had agents. I don't know that they performed so well for me. But uh, the majority of the work, honestly, that I got, and I'm not trying to pat myself on the back, but the majority of the work, honestly, I got pretty directly. I was very lucky because I was doing a lot of movie work, and the calls just came directly to me, just came to my office. And you're paying agents all these big fees. Do you and think that's because people talked and said he's great to work with? Yeah, I think they, they felt that I could get the picture. I think the big part when you're working on a motion picture campaign um, where they bring you in as a special, like the, the kind of a joke five weeks. I did six weeks on, t on Scarface with Al Pacino, too. Um, they want a photographer that's going to be able to get in there, get the talent to perform, because the talent doesn't really have to perform on a movie set. You know, they're, they're there to make a film. Right. They're not there to take still pictures. And it's something that I think a lot of the talent, a lot of the talent, not all the talent, they don't realize that sometimes. They think that that's, you know, a burden for them. But, you know, that's what it takes to sell a movie. They need to have some imagery. And well, sometimes you can get it from the movie stills, but sometimes you can't. Right. I mean, that's the interesting part is walk me through what's six weeks like on Scarface? What's, what, what's your idea going in week one and then when you're getting out week six what's your yeah you know it wasn't six weeks every day it was over the course of six or eight weeks of their shooting right tootsie i was on every day because i was in new york while they were doing it but <laughs> uh but uh on scarface they would pick key shooting days like i would shoot with al and michelle pfeiffer when they were in this one of the big mansions that were supposed to be in italy up in uh, santa barbara Okay. And then we'd sometimes shoot on the soundstage at Universal and, you know, different, different locations. So, um, you know, they would pick days when there were big money scenes where they built, you know, the elevator going up in that house where, where they had, you know, money on the, on the screen right. so that we would get, you know, great pictures. And also d days where Al wasn't, they weren't killing him too much <laughs> in terms of, of what he had to do. So that there would be time where he wasn't too messed up that we could do portraiture and, and pictures in between. Where did those photos live? Where did they go? They're all over the damn world now, man. <laughs> those, they've made in one sale more money than I got for all my time on Twitter. It's unbelievable. You go out, you see posters of that everywhere. It's like I've never seen anything more exploited than the pictures from, from that. Of all the movies I worked on, that is the one that where I would say you see the pictures because that movie was such a big hit. Right, you'll see a kid walking down with you yeah, know, Al's face. And all those pictures from Scarface are mine. 90% of what you see out there are my pictures that you, if you see stuff from Scarface. It's kind of crazy. So does that go back to the production house? And then I've never seen it. You know, they give you a buyout. You get paid a day rate and then a buyout for the And then off there. it goes. My yeah. God. Yeah. I mean, when, when was the first time you saw some of your work either – in a window or on a shirt. Well, I mean, I saw Tootsie as a billboard, you know, early on, Big Chill. And you go like, holy. Not really. I mean, I think probably the first one I saw the, the billboard for uh, the simple album for Leon and Mary Russell album, and it was like, wow, there's a billboard on Sunset Boulevard, <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, I, it never made me that crazy. 
Did you ever do um, album covers? Because they were a big... Oh, I it, shot hundreds of album covers. See, that, that's a loss. Hundreds, hundreds of album I, covers. I yeah. used to love to go through and flip through oh. albums and I see. Mean, you name, I mean, you know, uh, I mean, I, for one summer, I did every country act. <laughs> there was a good down in Nashville and shoot, but... <coughs> <coughs> Excuse me. I did with um, Bowie, probably a half a dozen album covers for David. I did Michael Jackson. I did Bette Midler, Barbara Streisand. <sighs> Kenny Loggins, uh, I mean, God, I can't remember all of them. I mean, a million, <laughs> million uh, musical artists, a lot. Zappa, Iggy, Brian Ferry. Oh, I mean, I did a million album covers. That's yeah. awesome. Those were like such special moments to actually go through, open them up, especially if it was a double fold or go back and you see Van Halen or Led Zeppelin. I did a lot of Van Halen. Did you? Yeah. How were they? You know, great. You know, the rock, the rock bands that everybody thinks oh my god they're going to be you know hardcore drinkers and partiers and they're going to be difficult no i mean i did i did rat i did uh, the, i worked a bunch of times with tommy lee i, I worked uh, a lot with van halen they were always very nice i did a lot of stuff just with david lee roth he, they were great oh david's great i never had any um any real album issues you know i had a, a few and we're not going to talk about it but i mean i had a you know very few in my career i was very lucky but i had a few stars that came through that you know didn't exactly wet my whistle, so to speak, but they're you know those kind of people. I really aren't even worth uh, giving airtime right. to. Right, but, but what about the ones that did? Like you were a little surprised, like oh my god, I can't. Well, believe some of the it. ones that I was like, there were there were talent that I wasn't, you know, that I was surprised about that I had formulated opinions in my mind uh, sure. of what they were going to be like, and they weren't like that. And then there were other ones that I'd heard stories about that were. But uh, one of the earliest things, uh, and one of the things I say in my lectures because I, I you know teach and lecture a lot is that, uh, you know, don't try to lock in an opinion about somebody before you shoot them because you don't know if they got laid the night before, you don't know if their dog got run over by a car, you don't know what's going on in their life at that moment. And just like in any business, everybody's entitled to a bad day. And they happen. Sure. But I always tried to meet everybody halfway and, and, and tried to make it, you know, easy for them. But I, at the same time, when you're an artist and you're trying to create work, you need some sense of, and some sort of cooperation to get the job done. Right. Now, your approach when you're doing a portrait is very much a unique style of being right there in front of them and then working your way back. Right. Where did that come from? Well, I mean, it's a bit logical if you think about it, because basically if you're going to photograph someone, um, the most important thing is to establish some form of intimacy and understanding and trust, and you can't get that if I'm standing across the room. Uh, it's it's by proximity. I mean, you know, when I if I'm on top of you like this, where we're close, we're gonna have a much better time to communicate and to connect. And if I get back further, it's it's more distant, and it, I can't really see your features, and I can't really tell what's gonna necessarily look best with the lighting and all. But if I'm up close and up front and personal, I can kind of figure out which angles I like and, and whatnot, and also just start to build a relationship because I can look in your eyes, and that's something I can't do if I'm sitting across a room. Are you a big communicator during oh, the portrait? Yeah. I'm a big communicator in terms of, of, of getting what I want, and uh, once I get the person basically body language, which is a huge part of the picture, and lighting and everything kind of where I want it, and I start to see the person either relax or unfold, or I start to get the picture, I'll encourage them, and then I back off because... I don't want to sit there and fill every waking moment and every little void of airspace yeah. with another direction because then they're going to get locked up and they're going to get confused. So it's nice in most cases to kind of let them play out. Once you get, if you can get them started on the road, 
uh, then let them kind of like just kind of unravel and 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 capture what you can get from that point of view rather than giving too much direction right now we've said you have a little bit of a control freak streak in you and that's fine but you're a huge collaborator you love to collaborate with your subjects oh no i mean i, I collaborate i'm not a control freak in that respect i'm a control freak in just making sure that when i know what i want to shoot that i have everything lined up properly okay. and then i let everybody everything else kind of just like and i'm also you're a big a firm believer when i start shooting that sometimes if i i have an idea to do something and if i find in a matter of a certain amount of time it's not working then we move on to the next or try something else i won't milk it to death when do you get that sense when things aren't working that you need to kind of move off of maybe this look. Well, either I'm not seeing what I want in the lens or I sense that there's a sense of uncomfortableness with the talent. If the person doesn't seem comfortable, you're not going to get a good picture because, you know, it's like taking your clothes off in front of the uh, a camera when you're doing a portrait. The person, you know, you're the person is kind of like aware of everything that's going on. Sure. They, obviously, yeah. I mean, I had this situation with some of my most famous pictures of Keanu Reeves. We were in a loft downtown. I was shooting a cover for Detour Magazine back in the... I think it was it could have been the '90s or late '80s, '90s I think '90s sometime, mid '90s probably, and we were shooting uh, in a loft downtown. I'd rented this big loft to shoot in. I'd be the motorhome and everything down there, the clothes and the makeup and the hair, and, and I was just watching Keanu, and he just didn't seem comfortable <laughs> in front of the camera, and not really in front of the camera. I was just watching his body language and intonations as we were kind of walking around, and I said, "You, I, I, I'm sensing that you don't feel that comfortable." I said, is there something you'd rather be doing? He said, well, honestly, I'd rather be riding my motorcycle out in Malibu. I said, well, let's pack up all this shit and let's go out to Malibu. And that's what we did. And we shot all those pictures. And, you know, some of them he was you know, partially naked. And I, I put the mm -hmm. camera down as he was changing clothes. And Keanu said, no, you shoot it, shoot it. And I shot him. And we got some great pictures. And they weren't, they weren't like, you know, distasteful pictures right, by yeah. any stretch of the imagination. But they were revealing a little bit. And so I knew that if I showed him to his publicist that they'd have been killed. So I just called Keanu. I said, you, can you come over and you take a, just take a look at these pictures? I want you to see them because I think they're pretty great. And he came over and he said, I love them. Use them. Run them. I know exactly which ones you're talking about. Yeah. You know, I'm standing by his motorcycle just changing yeah. clothes on the highway in Malibu. Yeah. Yeah. There's a bit of pubic hair. That yeah, would have. That's about it. That yeah. would have never, ever happened today. Oh, yeah. my God. They would have yeah. burned your camera to the stake. Yeah. No way. But it's such a beautiful moment it's you feel like you're yeah. going to go surfing with him and you guys are going to cross pch and hit the water like that's what that well yeah i mean it was a casual picture so yeah. right it's so well done that relationship you can capture and create with somebody not everybody has that were you were you did you always feel natural in making that connection well, I mean, this was just a situation. I dropped my camera down when I saw you. You know, I mean, many times you're standing there and the talent changes their clothes and you're in the room. Um, so you don't think, really think much about it. And, you, don't, you know, you're respectful. Usually you turn around, which I think I even turned around. And, mm -hmm. and uh, you kind of said, no, you can shoot it, shoot it. Did cinema or TV or anybody come calling the height of your powers and say, hey, we'd love you to shoot a music video or I, I a TV a few videos. I did a few videos. A couple, but I mean, yeah, you didn't... Not much. No, no. I never really did a lot with film, and that was my major. It's really weird. I just <laughs> never got into it. <laughs> Don't ask me why, but I just didn't. I mean, I really love the... I, I just like the serenity of doing the stills in my studio and, you know, less chaos and... Uh, just the one-on-one -on -one relationship with people, yeah. And, you know, then I got into doing my nudes and stuff, and so that was a whole period, and... So where did that start? That's a fun story. I was actually in New York in the 
uh, early 80s when my career was just kind of getting going pretty well. And I went to visit a, a good friend of mine, Antonio Lopez, and uh, who was a, v- a very famous fashion illustrator. Mm-hmm. <coughs> and I was excited to tell him what I'd been working on and been doing. And he said, you know, so what have you been doing, Greg? And I said, well, I just shot Tootsie, Big Chill, Scarface. And I thought, well, he's going to be impressed. He goes, well, he looks me coldly in the eyes. And he said, well, that's great, but what are you doing for yourself? And I realized at a certain point I was like a hired gun. You know, I was creating imagery for other people, but not creating so much imagery for myself. And he said to me at that point, he said, and he said, you know, if you want to have longevity in this business, you need to find a creative outlet outside of your commercial work to keep your batteries charged. And I said, hey, you're right. And that's what gave me the idea of coming back when I came back to Los Angeles of keeping the dynamic range of my lighting style, of my strong highlights and harsh shadows, but get people to shed people of their clothes, pull the camera back, and start doing my figure studies. And that's when I started doing my more personal work, and, uh, but still maintaining my lighting style. And then Antonio's was really responsible for that. Wow. That's interesting that he sparks that for you. And he gets you well, going. He, made me, he lit the candle and made <laughs> me think, yeah, you're right. I better find something to do besides just actor headshots. Yeah, so, work, so work, speak. work. Yeah. Was was there any kind of pushback? Like, oh, you're doing nudes. Where are you, why are you doing that? No, or? I mean, I probably got more pushback. And I, at that point in my career, I really didn't give a shit. Is I did a book on a boyfriend of mine, uh, a book called uh, Just Between Us, or as my assistant said, Not Anymore. <laughs> and uh, it was a pretty wild book. I'm, I will say it was a pretty racy book. But uh, I wanted to do it and at that point in my career. And it was all shot with a point-and-shoot camera. the last... Mm-hmm fresh work, I should say, that was new work that was shot with, uh, fi- on film. You know, and that was probably mid-90s, mid to late-90s. And uh, that work, you know, was, you know, that was pretty controversial work. But I thought, you know, if people can't accept, you know, the alter side of your commercial work, then that's, you know, I, d- I mean, I've always been open about my sexuality, and I've never been particularly concerned about what people think. I mean, this city's a, a city based upon opinions and what people think. And I mean, you know, the hypocrisy of the... Hollywood gay mafia, so to speak, is so <laughs> ridiculous in the city. Uh, and, you know, the, they all know the kids they've slept with, and yet, you know, then those kids can't even get a job because the, the hierarchy are more uptight and weird <laughs> right. about all that stuff. So, you know, it's just I never played into that game and never was part of that whole picture, so it never really, never really affected me or my career, so to speak. Well, you've always had a very interesting group that you've that you've been with and photographed it's always been great like the divine stuff and hanging out with john i i did a a shoot with him and all he wanted all i mentioned was you and then that's all we ended up talking about i was doing a for beaker i think it was his movie and i was doing up in hollywood here with john waters yeah yeah and he was oh yeah greg and this and that he's one of my very best friends yes and very very (laughs) closest friends and it's funny because when i did the book it's not about me David Fay, my gallerist, he'd want me to do a book called The Outsiders because the majority of my closest friends like Divine, like Grace Jones. Who I, was, uh, I spend Love a her. lot of time with Grace is here often and stays with me and, and, and we hang out. Uh, uh, I've always had, I've always, like I said, liked The Outsider people more than, you know, the mainstream because they're more interesting, they're more down to earth, they're more real, they're more tangible people. Right. Grace and Bridget, you shot her as well. Yeah, you know, I just ran into her the other day. I hadn't seen her in years. We've just reconnected. She looked like a million dollars, rail thin, 10 feet tall, and just breathtakingly gorgeous. She looks so great. Matter of fact, we've been 
We've been flirting on Instagram, and we've been trying to get together for a she's dinner stunning. soon. She, and she's lovely. We worked together for many, many years. You know, she was the very second set of nudes I ever took. Tony Ward was the first famous nudes that I shot with Tony back in the day. And uh, Bridget saw the nudes of Tony one day when we were shooting here, and we were both leaving town the next day for Europe, I believe. We both had separate trips, <laughs> and we canceled and stayed and shot because they really wanted to do the nudes. Oh. And we stayed in town and, and shot. I think she was going out. I don't know if she was going out with Stallone or Tony uh, Scott then, but we shot, you know, we did those amazing nudes, and she was so incredible. Oh. She looks that good now. She looks absolutely, I want to shoot her. I'm going to shoot her again soon. You should look up some current pictures of her. She looks fantastic. She oh. looks absolutely beautiful. Let me know. I'll stay on the sideline yeah. and clap. She looks, she, looks, she looks gorgeous now. She looks incredible. Yeah, your stuff of her, her I think, body. I think she's like right at about <sighs> 60 years of age, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. I could be wrong, but I think that's she's pretty close. And she looks unbelievable. The, I, I, it was bizarre because I was flying to uh, Munich for a, a gig just a couple months ago. I think it's August, September. I had to go to Munich to do something. And I was in the lounge at the airlines. And I see this tall blonde look around. I go, God, she looks just like Bridget Mills. But the last time I'd seen her, she was a little bit hefty and had done that TV series. Mm -hmm. And I hadn't seen her for a while. And I thought, no, it can't be her because I've made the mistake to go up to somebody not long ago that I thought was somebody in line. I hugged this girl and kissed her, and it was not the girl. And she was totally cool, but I thought, I'm not going to put my foot in my mouth again and go up to this woman and say, are you Bridget Nielsen? And so I was sitting there having a, a coffee in the, you know, where I was in the airport, and she'd gone off. I didn't remember where she went. And this guy comes up to me and says, are you Greg Gorman? <clears throat> and I said, yes. He said, well, Bridget Nielsen, I said, oh, my God, I can't believe it. So then I went and sat with her until our flights both, we were on separate flights. But, but no, we were actually on the same plane, as a matter of fact. What? Yeah, we were. We were, we were yeah, she was in the back part of the uh, first class, and I was in the front part. And we were just, you know, in the same thing. Yeah. We, we didn't sit together, but we hung out during the flight a little bit. We were both sleeping. It was one of those long flights. But, but yeah, but that was so funny. And so we got a good catch up. So. I mean, when. When you got to photograph her, I mean, she was so unique. She's so long and tall yeah, you know, and beautiful. Yeah, just a great body. Yeah, she yeah. was you know, an Amazon woman. Yeah, yeah and she beautiful. didn't look like any other woman. She's and she still doesn't. You no. know, she has really short. Uh, you should, you can Google her. She looks. She I has will. really short blonde hair now. She looks fantastic. She looks gorgeous. She just did a huge spread, I think, for Vogue. Really a big one. Yeah, one of the Vogue. Good. Yeah. I mean, when 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 you got her in front of her, how, I'm sure you did lots of women at the time to photograph. All of a sudden, she's a foot taller. I mean, she makes, you know, Meryl Streep or, or anybody else look so yeah. small. Then you yeah. get her. Do you get excited? Like, oh, my God. This well, is she was great to shoot, and I knew I was getting great pictures. Same with Tony Ward. I mean, I knew, you know, you get people that can move in front of the camera. It makes all the difference in the world. You can have a beauty there, and if they're like a block of ice, and you, you can't get it. But, you know, <laughs> she was she was terrific uh, in front of the camera. Oh. We got so much great stuff. Stunning. Was there ever a point... Was the art director, creative director saying, you know, you'd get more work if you maybe you change up your style. If you don't do yes, the... Yes, I had that with an agent. I oh. fired the agent. Um, I had an agent um, early on in my career who was a good agent, and I liked her very much. Um, and we won't... Man doesn't, names don't matter. But uh, after a while, you know, she said to me, she says, you know, Greg, you need to um, reinvent yourself. You need oh. to kind of find a new path and I think that we can move forward more quickly if we do that. And I said, I spent the last forty fucking years trying to figure out who Greg Gorman is and set up a kind of lighting and a style. Why would I want to change my style at this point? Exactly. You know, I I said I'm not looking to be hip, trendy or the flavor of the month. You know, I, I pride myself in having built and I think if you look at most uh, artists that 
you're familiar with, you know, in their life, um, you recognize them by their style, not by the fact that they mix it up every month. Right. Can you imagine all of a sudden Avedon at some point in the 80s style? Well, I'm doing this. I'm cross-processing all my work. I'm yeah, shooting no, with a I fist. Mean, that's, that's, that's kind of where it is. Yeah. Oh, my God. No, you've, you've created this beautiful body of work. Why would you want to shift all of a sudden and become some Instagram filter? That would be the worst thing to do. Yeah. Oh, that's my God. Sweet when you had subjects on set and you're doing long sets, like you said, you were doing two or three days with people. How are you keeping your organization of what you wanted to do lined up? If you wanted like David in a denim suit, David with a guitar, David with like, well, we had everything planned out. I mean, when David and I would shoot what, what David would do when we would have our three day shoots is we would, David enjoyed shooting and was incredible in front of the camera. He was truly one of the giants of all of them. But at the same time, he also knew <coughs> that he had to accomplish images that would fit within the parameters of certain magazines. I mean, we would do interview, but then we would do People magazine, or we would do some crazy Boyce Belt magazine that required pictures. Well, he didn't want to have to do a separate shoot for these magazines. So we would shoot stuff that we knew would fit the guidelines of those publications and stuff. And then uh, his company, which at the time I think was called Isolar Entertainment, mm -hmm. would hold back the art for when, you know, there was the specific project yeah. that we were working on. You know, and we and generally we would come together whenever we would have to shoot an album cover, and then we would build everything else around that. Okay. Oh, okay. You mentioned the album cover. You got to tell me. You got to give me the inside scoop. I remember this, has been, this was, was a battle in the dorm rooms of college. The bead of sweat on his cheek. Well, and that was just that was just uh, that was in New York. That was when we were shooting. Right. Um, that was when, that was on that time when I was with uh, 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 Toot, on Tootsie because that's when he had that platinum blonde hair. What, when you saw it, did you want the bead of sweat? Yeah, I liked it, so we shot it. Because I remember some people were like, "It's a tear. It's a this. It's a that." No, it we just recreated it for some ad thing I just did in London recently with another guy, <laughs> kind of a Bowie lookalike. I mean, yeah. Were you shooting hot lights, and that's why he was getting no strobe? He was just. He just got a little sweaty yeah. and it worked. It's such a great detail. Yeah. It's almost like someone came in with a little teardrop, put that in no. and said, there you no, go. Yeah, well, now we did that. You know. When you're making books, when, when were you thinking like, I want to do a book? Damn it, Greg needs to do a book. When were you deciding? I never really thought about it. You know, it just kind of happened very uh, cathartically. Uh, you know, volume one is like I thought, well, I have a lot of pictures here. I've done all this <laughs> interview work. And that was a lot of the interview work in the early book. And then the set, and then then I then after the first book, then it became kind of a natural thing, and it wasn't like I had a schedule or anything. It's just like, okay, you know, I've been. Sh I saw, I, that's when I gave myself the thing. I started shooting a lot of nudes, male and female nudes. Whenever I wasn't booked, I just started booking nudes and through the agencies, and and then compiled a lot of work and did it. And then, you know, and that just continued whenever I'd shoot personal work. But then I did, you know, the LAI Works book for mm -hmm. that campaign, and that that campaign. You know, I, I've been doing for more than 40 years. That. And uh, we're still shooting. We're setting up shoots now. We just did Danny Trejo, and I just, we just did a great shoot with uh, oh, the great, uh, what the heck is his name? <laughs> How embarrassing. Well, that's got to be a bunch, a bunch of great people. Just We did Cherry Vanilla recently, which was fun. Oh. And uh, so, you know, that campaign really helped put me on the map after interview and you know and what ultimately you know we would shoot those pictures and that was kind of when um it was kind of my heyday a lot of people were coming through the studios for shoots every day and 
Then it was me like being the Jewish furniture salesman <laughs> that my father was convincing these people to do an LAI works ad for nothing. I mean, you know, the LAI was a small eyeglass company yeah. in Melrose. But they, we shot, I shot over 200, I've shot well over 200 ads for them. Uh, and everybody, everybody. That's got to be a record. 40 yeah. years that long yeah. of a campaign yeah. Yeah. with still one going. company? Still going. And uh, we would shoot these ads and in, in the mid-80s. And they would appear every month in Interview Magazine, which was what was great. And uh, that's what was really the key thing, I think, for a lot of the talent. They loved the idea of having their face in Interview Magazine because that was the magazine to be in in the day. Sure. And then it, it just so happened in the late 80s, 86, 87, um, Andy called me, who I knew because of interviewing and whatnot and right. social f- circles and whatnot. And ask if he could be in one of the ads, and because uh, he had just signed a right, contract had, with uh, Ford Models, he wanted to. And be he a model. came out, and we shot. And that picture, unbeknownst to me at the time, became my most famous photographs. See, I like that photograph. There's so many other ones that you have taken that I go, "Oh my, that's the one I want." Where, what do you like? Which the the Bridget one? That one's gorgeous. The frontal nude where yes. she's standing against the wall. Yeah, because her arms and her yeah. body, it's, yeah. it's, it's like yeah. it's not a real person, and she's so gorgeous and striking. Yeah. Um, there's one of, of Leo. He's very young in his career. It's a black and white. It's just a shoulder, but his jawline's oh, unbelievable. Oh, that one big headshot of his. Yeah. Head. That's a famous picture. Um, yeah. But you've got someone with, I'm looking around here. I mean, there's None so of these many. Are mine. No, but this <laughs> great work. I mean, yeah, great work. Yeah, Lenny Reef install and Willow Boy Shadow. And this was great. Of course, Bristol. This is such a famous picture. This. Oh one. yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. yeah, one of my favorite trumpet players of all time. Um, when you're do, you know, the pandemic hits, everybody's gonna go like, oh my god, what do we do? You decide to take pictures. I well, mean, I had I mean, new cameras and new lights from my sponsors, which was, uh, you know, I had brand new lights from Road Light, which I've been using for, you know. Everybody's quite, quite binge watching, Greg, and you're deciding yeah. to take pictures. That's well, fantastic. Well, I had, I, had I had the lights and I had brand new cameras I was <laughs> shooting with, which were the Fuji cameras, of, you know, and I thought, I don't have any work to show for, <laughs> I don't have anything for, to do. My, for my sponsors. And I thought, I'd had a pretty good collection of African uh, voodoo and fetish dolls and, uh, uh, I thought, well, ma- and masks. You haven't seen the masks. How upstairs. many are we talking here? Well, I shot a couple of hundred, but I ended up buying collections. I didn't have that many when we started the project, but I, uh, I started shooting them in my kind of style, my uh, photographic style. Not black and white, obviously color. Obviously digital's color anyway, but most of them are pretty monochromatic. I started photographing them and realized that I had these pictures that were kind of cool. Now, they, it was a quite a complicated process because as you can see they're very small most of them are like four to six inches in height and uh so i would have to shoot 20 captures because i had to shoot macro photography and then combine them with photo aligning and blending them in a focus stack to get the depth of field from the front to the back of the sculptures and then i thought these need a little bit more and gary johns has been my creative director on half of my books i've published 13 books and he's been the creative director on a lot of them I thought maybe he should take a look, take my pictures, throw them in the middle of his art and see what happens. And he thought I was crazy, but <laughs> he tried it. And the, when I saw the results from the first couple, I went, oh, my God, these are unbelievable. And that's how the project started. And that brought in uh, my retoucher, Rick Allen. And um, that's how the project got off the ground. And every afternoon, Jerry, who's my assistant, I think who you met mm-hmm. when you came in, <laughs> we would spend every afternoon, we just set aside from four to six and it usually ended up going sometimes from like three to seven or whatever. 
we would just shoot three or four pictures because that's all you could get just shot in, in here a day. in your studio. Yeah, I basically put a bowl of rice on a lazy Susan so you could stand them in there and then photograph them from different angles, turning them into the light, away from the light, just like I did my portraits. Worked with reflectors, silks, Nothing. blacks to take light away. Yeah. And that's kind of how that project was born. Was that fun for you? Oh, it was amazing. And I always joked, <laughs> and I always said many times in many of my interviews, that I'd never shoot anything that couldn't talk back to me. <laughs> but, you know, a lot of these were voodoo dolls, and they did talk back to us. We had, we had a handful that we couldn't get. that we, I had to shoot three or four times before I could get the portrait. And this is with me turning and trying all my magic, and I just couldn't get it. And then wow. some, sometimes we, we eventually, I think, I think eventually we got pictures that we could live with. Did but it kind of feel revigorating, like getting in the well, studio? Well, it was completely revigorating. I mean, to have a project that wasn't me shooting, so to speak, pardon my French, dick or pussy or celebrities, <laughs> all of which tie together anyway, was kind of fun. And uh, it really was an amazing project. Amazing, you know. That's, that is... You know, and it's exciting. And we're going to have our first very big show, you know, in a couple of weeks now down in Palm Springs, which anyone's invited to come if, they want, if they're down in Palm Desert. It's the, the Holman Gallery. Home and Fine Art Gallery on Valley Court. Twenty-seventh. Um, on the twenty-seventh from five to seven. Yeah. Right. Stop by and say hi. This is what we got into photography to do, is to to, to do projects that fire us, get us fired up. Yeah. Well, this was a great one. I mean, you know, I only had a couple that were kind of out of the ordinary for me. This one I did a book um, a while back called um, Outside the Studio, which is a book of pictures I shot in Southeast Asia. And that was my only uh, venue back into uh I into street photography. You've never seen that book? No, I have, and it's unbelievable. You know, yeah, and I never got a show with it. Faye didn't want to do a show. He felt that, you know, he always said that, you know, Herb's pictures from Africa, that was not his signature, and that they didn't think that the, uh, the uh, uh, pictures in Southeast Asia were, was my signature, and I think it's a pretty good book, and I like the pictures. It was tough for me, I'll tell you. You know, I'm you used worked to, your I'm ass used to, off, didn't you? I'm used, well, I'm just used to being in a very controlled situation, and when you put me on the street and with a camera in front of people, I don't know, it was tough. To maintain my style, you know, but I ended up doing a big project. The blind man the, photo. Yeah. The, I'd love yeah. the blind man yeah. photo. But we ended up doing, um, I ended up, Steve McCurry got me involved in this project called Nine Days in the Kingdom. So I ended up going over and shooting um, Muay Thai kickboxing, which was cool, which is a big part of the book. Yeah. I mean, what was that for you to shoot an action sport? Well, it was funny because I said, I'm used to shooting still lights. I tell people to sit down and fucking hold still, you know. <laughs> Whether it's the dolls or a movie star, you know, it's a kind of a funny situation. So it was, it was a, cha it was very challenging, but it was great. But it was like me taking a workshop, you know. I had to come up to the up to the table and and uh, figure it out, you know, the right right shutter speeds, so that you'd get a little bit of movement, but not too much that the picture was blurred, but you still got the power of the hit and the punch and. It was a pr it was pretty extraordinary. The images looked like they were, I mean, really tough lighting. You really probably yeah. Well, you we were shooting pretty high ISOs, and uh, you know. But I've always shot high ISOs digitally speaking. Not if I'm doing the big commercial work, but right. personal work. Um, I have no problem shooting at thirty two hundred. You know. I mean, oh, the stuff looks great compared to what we started you know, it looks out like, with. Like, yeah. I mean, you know, it, it has. Uh, yeah, that in that book, most of the stuff wasn't that high because uh, there were earlier cameras. That was a while ago, two thousand ten. So yeah, I was probably shooting most of that stuff at sixteen hundred, and that still was. That, still had some noise in it but it looked like grain and film now is that approach different were you thinking like okay i gotta get a 51 2 or i mean what no i'm i've never had super fast lenses it's funny um 
I never shoot that much wide open. I usually shoot longer lenses, so consequently, seventy two hundred two eight. Yeah, the shallow. Yeah, the seventy two hundred four. Okay, but um, I just got the new two eight for my Sony now. I've switched over from Canon to Sony. So, how do you like that? I love Sony. I love Sony and Fuji. That's why I shoot those two. Fuji more for medium format, and the Sony for thirty five. I love. Yeah, boy. You know, from when we started, cameras have come in a way I could never have imagined. You do this book, you got a project, but how long have you been doing workshops? I actually started teaching back uh, probably either the late 80s, very early 90s for Reed Callanan in Santa Fe, New Mexico is when I first started. He asked me to do a workshop, and I go, what's a workshop? (laughs) Who the hell knew back then? And it just became something that I really had a passion for, and I felt I was a pretty good teacher, and I've done... When I built my home in Northern California in Mendocino, um, I thought, why not do workshops out of here? Because we had black sand beaches. We had sand, 40-foot sand dunes. We had vineyards. We had the ocean. I was on a big cliff. Uh, so I did about 50 workshops up there. But I teach internationally all over the world. And, and it's fun for me. It's like it's selfish in some ways. I get to go rent these beautiful <laughs> castles and in Austria and France and in Germany and in Italy and, and then teach workshops, you know, in Provence and, you know, in, in Monza, near Monza in Italy and, and uh, in Italy, in uh, Austria and uh, outside of uh, uh, Graz, Austria in the Schusteiermark region, wine region. It's just fabulous. Now I'm doing these workshops up in the Dolomites, which I started last year with one of my gallerists in Munich. And it's just, it's incredible. You know, we have these exquisite locations and great models and, uh, are you very hands-on? Or? I'm, I'm on top of everybody when I'm teaching. I don't send them off to shoot ever by themselves. I'm always okay. with them every day. So it's a very hands-on workshop. Yeah, and it's a, they're small. They're like nine students. That's intimate. Yeah, that's perfect. So they learn a lot, and we shoot five days, and I do demos every day, and then they shoot you know, in small groups of three people and uh, with a model, and we have different models and do portraiture and nude. So, you know... I think for me, you know, I, I kind of lost my passion for the commercial work uh, around 2005, 2006, as I was telling mm-hmm. you earlier. And I knew that if I wanted to keep my passion for photography alive, I needed a different outlet, a new outlet. And that was really when I decided to get into education. So I've been teaching for 35 years or so. Are you critiquing their work on oh, site? every day I critique on site. We look at the pictures. We put them up on the screen. They, they'll give me, you know. 10 to 12 picks every day. That is And priceless. we go over their pictures one-on-one with everybody. So everybody sees everybody else's pictures. And because they're working, let's say, in teams of three, one person shooting and two assisting, holding reflectors or a light or whatever, flag, um, they see the mistakes they made right. as an assistant. So it's really a pretty hands-on thing. And then it's also because of me, a lot about food and wine. So we have, you know, we have really, you know, we're shooting up in the Dolomites. You've got... You know, the influence of Italian, Austrian, and, and uh, German food in, in one location. So it's pretty amazing. If you weren't a photographer, would you have been a chef? I've heard about these grand no, meals I don't think I'm, and I'm, parties. I'm, a, I'm a, a decent cook. I wouldn't say I'm a great chef. Uh, could have been. A, I mean, I became a winemaker. You know, I made wine for right. a long time. So that wine making was, was a great passion and was really fun. I did that for quite I made wine from 2006 to 2018 up in Napa. That's unbelievable. Which was cool and fun. Yeah. If okay, if you weren't a photographer, what would you have been? What would have Greg Gorman have been? I don't know, a professional fisherman. <laughs> you <laughs> do love fish. fishing. Oh yeah, that's a that's my big passion. I love fishing. Yeah. What do you like to fish? 
Where or what? Where? Where um, and what? Well, I mean, I, I, I mean, I think it just has a lot to do with my upbringing in Kansas. I mean, as a little boy, I always liked the outdoors. And so, I mean, I like just being outdoors. The fishing is kind of an added bonus. But, I mean, I do love to fish, and it takes me to really beautiful places. I fish in Wyoming. I do trout fishing with my good friend Kent Flurry in Wyoming, usually almost every year. Now he and I are fishing more on the East Coast where he's resettled with his wife. In, he's in, um, down in uh, Palmetto Bluffs, South Carolina, so we fished down near Buford, actually where I shot, uh, worked on the Big Chill for umpteen weeks, <laughs> and we fished there for redfish, which is, is a lot of fun. And then in Maine, where I teach, I stay on a lake, so I do a lot of smallmouth bass fishing in the morning, and then on the weekends when I'm not teaching, I go out for stripers, so... It's I want to come back as Greg Gorman. You know, but the teaching is uh, is a nice uh, liaison into food, wine, fishing. You know? oh, man. You know, it's like the old days when you'd work on a movie, and if you're in a nice location, you'd try to add a day or two on here at somebody else's expense and enjoy right. doing things on your own. Like this next trip to Europe, I'll go and see. The one I'm getting ready to have a big exhibition in um, outside Dubai coming up in uh, February at, at uh, uh, Exposure. And when I finish that trip, well, I'm going to go to Egypt and see Egypt. I've never been to Egypt, so trying to pack in a few more before I start pushing up daisies. So. Good, good. Are you yeah. a fly? Do you like fly fishing? No, you know, I'm, it's, I'm sad. Most of my friends love to fly fish, but I'm I'm an old school spin fisherman. Okay. Yeah, I like open face spinning real little ultralight. I think maybe a workshop in Miami or uh, well, maybe Wyoming or, or Montana. Yeah, I mean something like that could be great. You're not you're not far, but I mean where I am now, I'm <laughs> staying in a cabin on a lake in Maine. I mean it's not that's exactly not, chopped liver. That's you know? not bad at all. What let's and let's end it with this. What advice would you give young photographers getting into the business? Your early twenties. What do you say to them? Find another job today. <laughs> no, in all honesty, try to find your own voice. I mean, it's like find a style that uh, – look at the work that you're doing now and, and, and see what you feel is repetitive that you're coming back to over and over again to kind of figure out your own style, your own voice. Never think you've taken the perfect picture, you know. I think uh, it's much harder today. I wouldn't want to start over today. Everybody's got Photoshop, and everybody's got an autofocus, auto-exposure camera. They all have their little handle, handy uh, cell phones, and they take a picture, and they think they're the greatest thing since Richard Avedon. And, and honestly, they'd be hard-pressed to repeat a picture that they may, got may have gotten lucky to have gotten on their phone. I mean, I get many pictures on my phone. I go, wow, that is so great. I could never light something like that. And the phone captures it pretty well. Right. But, uh, you know, I think it's, it's, it's hard today. I think today's a tough time to go out and become a, just go out and become a photographer. Right. Mr. Gorman, I can't thank you enough. I, um, I love your work. I stole from your work. You inspired my work. I mean, you are one of the guys of Mount Rushmore. And you, you are the reason I am a photographer. Right, you're very kind. And, and I'm serious. I, when I saw your work, and, and God, like I said early, when it was only seeing it on a magazine or, you know, I used to bug my librarian at the La Habra Library. I would always tell, can we need more photo books? What magazines can you get yeah, for me? very kind. I'm going to go make you a little print of Bridget Nielsen before <laughs> you leave. <laughs> no, but well, I'm I serious. Yeah. Thank you. Thank well, you thank for you what you've much. done, your work. You're still teaching. Like, if anybody takes your workshops... And those five days, they pick up one thing from you, it was worth every penny. You're a master, sir. Thank you. Well, you're very kind. Thank you for the kind words. Thank you for your time. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Greg Gorman. You can find information about his website. You can find information about his workshop. 
at his website, gormanphotography.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please click the like button and become a subscriber to the podcast. Remember to follow the Just a Good Conversation podcast on Instagram, and you can find all of our past shows on our website at justagoodconversation.com. Thank you for listening.